Good morning. <clears throat> I'm Wimala, and I think I am officially in ragweed season. So my voice, my eyes are red from itching, and uh, my voice is a little froggy. So hopefully it won't be a problem. Uh, otherwise, I'm fine if I cough. It's not from a virus. It's from it's from allergies. So <clears throat> today I'd like to read another essay or story from Sharon Salzberg's book, A Heart as Wide as the World, Stories on the Path of Loving Kindness. This one is still in the section, the first section, The Spirit of Meditation. But all of, all of these are wonderful, so it's hard to pick. But this one, this one is good. I like this one, and I, I know there are a lot of people that might um, benefit from this because it's a big question. Sometimes it's hard to, uh, well, this is a topic, seeing our way through doubt. So I'll get right into reading it, and then we'll have, some, we'll have time to sit at the end. So, seeing our way through doubt. From the first moment I began to practice meditation, let me turn off something. Sorry. Okay. Oh, everything's akimbo. <laughs> From the first moment I began to practice meditation, I felt as if I had come home. I never had any doubt about the benefits of the Buddhist teachings or the value of the practice of meditation. I did have doubts about other things, my own capacity to practice, whether my mind would ever quiet down, how much compassion I might ever experience. And for a while I had major doubts about what, uh, which particular practice to do. My first teacher was from a Burmese tradition, and so I practiced that method of meditation for some months. Then, then someone showed me a picture of a Tibetan Lama. Uh, and you know, I realized, I think I've read this one before, but it's really good, so let's read it again. <laughs> then someone showed me a picture of a Tibetan Lama. I was very intrigued, and I decided to go meet him. He became my second teacher. It was a different tradition, a different lineage, and a different way of practice. Soon I found myself in a dilemma. I simply could not decide which practice to do. Whenever I sat down to meditate, I would obsessively think, should I do this one or should I do that one? I bet that one is faster. Maybe this one is faster. Look at the people who do that meditation. What do I think of them? What about the people who do this practice? Whenever I was with my Burmese teachers, I asked them what they thought about Tibetan practice. And when I was with my Tibetan teachers, I asked them what they thought of Burmese practice. Dedicated to our own tradition, these teachers really knew very little about other practices. And the news, the views they did offer, were sometimes based on ancient doctrinal disagreements. 
Okay, I definitely have read this. I'm recognizing everything. Um, so I'm going to continue reading because it is good and maybe it's worth uh, reading a second time or you haven't heard it. In effect, I wasn't learning from either practice. Rather than meditating, I was sitting and ruminating about which practice would be best to do. Not knowing which was the best or the right practice, I couldn't even focus on an object of concentration. No sooner would I decide to follow my breath than I would begin to wonder if I shouldn't be saying a mantra or visualizing a deity instead. And rather than learning from my teachers what they knew very deeply, I insistently questioned them in areas they knew very little about. The state of indecision I found myself in is one aspect of the hindrance of doubt, one of, one of doubt's most significant and detrimental functions is that it prevents us from placing ourselves in an attitude of truly listening. It prevents us from allowing the truth to be revealed. Thus, when the mind is caught in doubt, when we believe our doubting thoughts and give them power, it is very difficult to progress in any practice. Doubt makes it impossible to commit ourselves. We become unwilling to take the risk of giving a process some time, of allowing the truth to come forth. Instead of allowing answers to emerge intuitively, doubt demands that we know the answers immediately. Instead of drawing close to our experience, the doubting mind pulls us back from whatever the moment is offering so that we can scrutinize it, usually so that we can compare it to something else and so we sit thinking, am I doing it right? Am I doing it perfectly right? Is it worth doing? What am I doing here? Continually comparing, judging, and assessing keeps us stuck and unable to see deeply for ourselves. It is not that we should become gullible and simply believe everything we hear. It is both healthy and helpful to have a certain level of skepticism about what we are told is true. But when the Buddha urged his disciples not to simply accept what he said without investigation, he meant that doubt should impel us to discover the truth for ourselves. If the truth is to become our own, we need to allow our experiences to speak to us. And if we surrender to a process long enough to experience it fully, then we are ready to make a considered judgment. What does it mean to me? Is it worthwhile? Is it important? Is it useless? Should I forget it? Realizing that I had tied myself into a knot about which practice I should do, I knew that I would have to unravel it. I had to commit to one practice or the other. It hardly mattered which one I did, as long as I did it fully. I said to myself, just do something. It doesn't have to be a lifetime commitment. It doesn't have to be the absolutely right decision. Do it for six months, do it for a year, some period of time in which to actually give it a try. Just do it and see what happens. 
Immediately I was able to meditate again. I also began once more to learn from my teachers by asking them what they knew most about. There are many ways to see through the hindrance of doubt. One of the most effective is to actually use it as the object of mindfulness, to recognize the confusion, the indecision, the questioning, not as authentic inquiry, but simply for what they are, doubt. Seeing that, we can remember again our real goal of insight. We can remember that our chosen practice is a context in which we can allow the truth to reveal itself. At times, we may need to seek answers to our questions from a teacher or through study so that we can come to understand what is healthy, healthy doubt, and what is doubt that just leaves us stuck. Sometimes it's just a matter of giving things time, as I had to do when trying to decide between forms of practice. The most important tool in working with doubt is confidence in our own ability to see the truth. When I was no longer distracting myself with questions about which practice to do, I could face my deepest doubt which lay below all of the superficial mental activity, whether I actually had the ability to fulfill the goals of the practice. In the hindrance of doubt, this kind of self-doubting is perhaps the most basic and most insidious. Self-efficacy, a contemporary psychological contest, is a quality that enables one to meet challenges as they arise with self-efficacy, we have faith in ourselves and our ability to encounter difficulties. A person who has a strong degree of self-efficacy is willing to take risk, to face new challenges. This concept reveals that what we believe about our own abilities profoundly affects them. Our capacity to grow, understand, love, and connect is not limit, a limited or defined quantity, but we limit it by what we believe about ourselves. When self-doubt arises in the mind, we can transform it into a helpful tool. We use it as a signal to cultivate confidence in our own ability to face obstacles that naturally arrive, arise on the path of discovery. This basic confidence enables us to face any level of doubt. Then we can experiment wholeheartedly, not holding parts of ourselves back from our practice and our lives. The key to cultivating confidence in ourselves is understanding our right to make the truth our own. In a discourse in the early Buddhist canon, the Buddha addresses a group of villagers confused by the very presentations of so many teachers saying, you should decide not by what you have heard, not by following convention, not by relying on the text, and certainly not out of respect for a teacher. When you know for yourself that these things are unhealthy, these incline toward, toward harm and suffering, then you should abandon them when you know for yourselves that these things are healthy, 
these incline toward welfare and happiness, then having come upon them, you should stay with them. When we realize that access to the truth is our natural birthright, we can overcome the doubt that seeks to separate us from our experience. Then we draw as close as possible to each moment, not with confusion, but with wisdom. Let's see, we're good on times. So that's a very, that's, I have read that before very recently. And um, as I was reading it, I was very aware we've done it before, but it's very good. So we have to we have to keep using our intelligence and our and our own wisdom to see what things are beneficial, what things are true, what things what when you know for yourself that these things are healthy, these incline toward welfare and happiness, then having come upon them you should stay with them. So I don't think, let's see if there's a very short one I would read it. Here's a really short one. Let's read this and then we'll practice. This is called Daily Liberation. My colleague Kamala Masters began her meditation practice with Munindra as her first teacher. When he went to Hawaii to teach, Kamala opened her house to him as a place to stay. At the time, she was a single mother, raising three small children alone and working two jobs to make ends meet. Make ends meet. When he first arrived, Munindra strongly encouraged Kamala to set aside a portion of each day for formal sitting meditation. This is, after all, the traditional incantation of meditation teachers. Sit every day, sit every day. Kamala kept pointing out to Manindra that there was no way in the world that she was going to have time to sit every day. Finally, perhaps seeing that her protest had reason, he asked her what she did more than anything else each day. She thought for a, mo for a moment, then responded, wash dishes. Munindra went over to the sink with her, and together they practiced <clears throat> mindful dishwashing. Thus began Kamala's daily meditation practice. Then Munindra noticed that in the short, dark hallway <coughs> between Kamala's bedroom and the rest of the house, the children tended to leave her alone. He suggested that she consider the hallway her temple for walking meditation. <clears throat> Whenever Kamala was in that part of the house, she practiced mindfully walking those few steps. She says now that because she was so aware there, she came to regard that hallway as a sacred spot, sacred site. One of the most wondrous aspects of the Buddhist teachings is that they are never removed from a sense of humanity. Being a human being himself, the Buddha talked about it, what it ultimately means to be human and to be happy. The depth of the Buddha's compassion 
is reflected in the tremendous pragmatism of his teachings. He offers a path that is direct, present, and available through every aspect of a human life, not abstract or removed from normal people. The basic principle of the Buddhist teachings is not to emphasize tradition, but to point out our own capacity for insight and realization. They embody a completely living spirituality, which can be supported by tradition, but never replaced by it. Rooted in simplicity and in connection, the path is about going beyond one's sense of limitation, joining into the vastness of life, and knowing liberation. The Buddha said that all of his teachings had one taste, the taste of liberation. Our path, our sense of spirituality, demands great earnestness, dedication, sincerity, and continuity, but it is not intended to be a strained, hectic, or tortured pursuit. Above all, it is meant to be our own. It is a practice based in feeling at home, in our own process, in ourselves, and in our unique situations, so that while we practice with effort and earnestness, we also practice with gratitude and ease. We can be natural even as we are wholeheartedly, oh, I'm sorry, we can be natural even as we are wholehearted in applying the practice. We can put forth our complete effort while also being at peace. This ease comes from being uncontrived in our efforts. I love that. This ease comes from being uncontrived in our efforts and using every moment we can to see more clearly. Like Kamala mindfully washing dishes or walking down the hallway, our dedication to awakening can be expressed throughout the moments of our daily lives. Oh, I really love that one. That is an answer to, to those who say, I don't have any time to meditate. So think of a chore you do every day uh, or something you do every day that's a habit and use that time to also be practicing mindfulness. Uh, or practicing loving kindness. So um, I'm going to just let's spend the time. We have about eight minutes to do a loving kindness practice. So this is the this is one that I've read before. It's a little different. I'll just read the words. You can just close your eyes and I'll read the words and then we can just sit with you can just sit with this. And then if you if you like to uh, you know go we <laughs> You can, we can all start with sitting, closing your eyes if you can, and just being with the breath. Be aware of your own happiness, whatever happiness is there, whatever your feelings of peace and serenity are right now, just feel them, 
be aware of them. Allow them to arise in you if they're somewhere down there, but you just haven't haven't found those feelings today. Because if we feel how good happiness feels and peace, calmness and serenity and just how good it feels to be well and healthy and awake. Just be doing that as I read this. Think, happy, at rest. May all beings be happy at heart. Whatever beings there may be, weak or strong, without exception, long, large, middling, short, subtle or gross, seen and unseen, living near and far away, born or seeking birth. May all beings be happy at heart. Let no one deceive another or despise anyone anywhere or through anger or resistance and perception, wish for another to suffer. May all beings be happy at heart. Let no one deceive another or despise anyone anywhere or through anger or resistance and perception, wish for another to suffer. Just sit with that. And just feel yourself radiating out loving kindness to all beings.
May everything we do and say and think for the rest of this day be done not only for our own benefit, but also for the benefit of all those who come in contact with us and all beings everywhere. We create our own refuge and we may be able to help others find their refuge. So thank you everyone. Um, have a beautiful weekend and I'll see you Sunday morning or anytime you choose to, to watch and listen.